Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey guys, welcome to Rock and Roll Heaven, the podcast where we talk about the lives, careers, and deaths of famous musicians. This is our short set. I'm your host, LD. Along with me for the ride, as always, is TJ. Oh, hey. Uh, so, yeah, by the time this came out, I'll be 40 now. Woo! Yay! Happy birthday. Yeah. <laughs> okay. It always makes me think of two things. One... That old animated Christmas movie, Frosty the Snowman, when they put the hat on him and he, happy birthday. And then Cinderella, little Gus Gus. Oh, Gus Gus. Happy birthday. Well, I finally got TJ to watch a movie. Well, most of it. She She live messaged me through the entire thing. We'll we'll get our takes (laughs) on the film after this episode, but today we're going to be talking about what's the difference between the actual story of Queen and the film Bohemian Rhapsody. So I just want to touch on some points that they might have switched around on the timeline, they completely left out, or they just all in all got kind of wrong. And understand that the film Bohemian Rhapsody is, I think, a lot of the things that a lot of choices that they made for the film were due to pacing and time. Because you're going to see there are some glaring differences between the actual story of Queen and what the film portrayed. So we're going to jump into it with when Freddie met Brian and Roger. And you saw the scene. Yeah, kind of. Okay, I saw it. It just was very, conf- very jarring because it was like fast forward. Yeah, well, in the film it's portrayed as this like meet cute where... He goes to see them at a club one night, and then all of a sudden, Tim Staff yeah, 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 their singer Tim Staffel quits, and he walks up to the van as they're like commiserating, and then just gives them an impromptu performance, and then all of a sudden he's in Queen. That's not entirely true because they were all friends, and they would kind of do this like dosy do of bandmates and see what worked, and so he he actually knew. The members of Smile and lived with with Brian for a short time before they became bandmates. Right. And then within that, then that's also when he kind of sees Mary for the first time. I'm getting to that. Yeah. So hang on. So so how Freddie met the future bandmates Roger Taylor and Brian May as depicted in Bohemian Rhapsody is quite different from their Previous official and unofficial narratives. In the movie version, uh, Freddie checks out Brian and Roger's previous band, Smile, 
at a show in 1970 and later searches for them backstage. When he does, he learns that Smile, Smile's singer and bassist Tim Staffel has turned in his walking papers to join Humpy Bong. Humpy Bong. Uh, at first, Roger and Brian don't know what to make of Freddie's somewhat shy persona, but they're well by Freddie when he starts to sing. But according to the authorized biography Queen, as it began 40 years of Queen, Mercury had already known May, Taylor, and Staffel when Smile was still around, and the four of them even shared an apartment together. So yeah, I, I kind of get that that had to be collapsed. And Did it? It did. How are you going to... That's legitimately like four years of history. So they just kind of had to yeah, fast but, track that. But again, I feel like they could have fast tracked it, but stayed truer to the actual story. Well, I mean, here's the other thing is... <laughs> Instead of like, oh, I walked up to them in an alley and sang them some notes and said, call me. Like, If you guys can't tell, Tracy really doesn't like the film, but I'm going to try to curve her away from just I know, I'm sorry. biting at it before the end. I'm not trying to bite at it, but I'm just saying like... This are more observations, bite at it at the end. <laughs> no, I know. I'm just saying, I, I again, I feel like they could have stayed truer to the story like maybe they were commiserating over the guy leaving in the apartment that they share but they didn't share it at that time this is that's what i said this is like years and years and years of friendships and apartments and history i mean they completely you jump in in 1970 so we've already missed like his family his school what happened with the uprising getting to london suffering going through school like we start with him as a baggage handler at Heathrow Airport well I do think that that makes sense in terms of like it being about that yes it's about Freddie Mercury but it's about the story of Queen within that so that does make sense to me in terms of where you start in the in the film with him being a baggage handler well let's move on to Freddie's relationship with Mary Austin the love of his life and I say that with a question mark. Mm-hmm. Uh, early in the film, when Freddie was looking for the members of Smile backstage, he encounters Mary Austin, and immediate connection is established. But according to Mark Blake's 2011 band biography, Is This the Real Life? Mercury met Austin in 1970 when she was working as a receptionist at a clothing store. And so, again, they kind of collapse that as well. So in, yeah. in the film, in the same night, he meets his future bandmates, and Mary Austin, which wasn't quite true. So she was working in a clothing store, and it took Freddie nearly six months to finally ask me out, she recalled, as it began. I thought he fancied my best friend, so I used to avoid him. One night we were uh, at one of his gigs, and after it finished, he came up looking for me. I left him at the bar with my close friends, and I told him that I was going to the loo, but I actually snuck out, and he was furious. <laughs> and the thing is, is that she actually dated Brian May beforehand, and Brian actually gave Freddie permission to ask her out. <laughs> nice. What's not in dispute is their close relationship. Even after they broke up in the late 70s, when Mercury died in 91, he reportedly left Austin his home and like 50% of his estate. Mercury and Austin's relationship would outlast almost all of the other singers' relationships with men, Blake wrote in his book. May revealed in 2017 that he was kind of going out with Austin and Freddie came up to me one day and he said, are you serious with Mary or can I ask her out? (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, it wasn't that meet cute that you see in the film. It's more of a a relationship that 
took a really long time to build and finally came to a head. And then he finally got up the nerve to ask her out. And and then it then it blossomed into the relationship that lasted him until the day he died. So it it's a cute way to start the film by kind of front loading it with all this good stuff in one night. Yeah. So another thing that the film switched around, kind of glazed over, whatever you want to call it, was Jim Hutton. Yeah, WTF, man. Well, you didn't even watch the entire film. I watched enough of it to know I didn't need to watch the rest of it. Well, in Bohemian Rhapsody, after Freddie throws a lavish and wild party in his home, he meets Jim Hutton, one of the servers at the bash, and drunkenly hits on him. Freddie later apologizes for his behavior, and they share a conversation before developing a romantic relationship. In real life, as it's recalled in Queen As It Begins, Mercury met Hutton, an Irish hairdresser at a London club called Heaven, sometime in the early to mid-80s. And uh, that was, it was interesting because I did mention this within the episode, but when Freddie first met Hutton, he offered to buy him a drink. Hutton didn't know who he was, and he was actually with someone at the time, so he declined. And then something like 18 months later, they were back at the same bar. And I think at that point, Jim had ended his relationship with the person that he was going out with. And this time he accepted the drink from Freddie. Right. So it it's a that was one of those sticking points in the film, which I actually did not like, was you took Hutton, who was someone who was really important in Freddie's life, and you turned him into a server. Yeah. Like Jim Hutton carved out a career as a hairdresser. And he worked in a hotel as the hairdresser and he had this career and all of a sudden, you know, but you have to, you have to find a way to introduce that character in a way that makes sense to the story. Again, I have some thoughts on this, but I will refrain. Yeah, we're just going to save it till the end. You can, you can crap on this film in a minute. (laughs) Mercury actually told Hutton he was HIV positive and would understand if they called off the relationship. However, Hutton dismissed this and stuck by Mercury, even helping to take care of the singers in his final days. I do like to think that in his last few years were happy as they could have possibly ever been, he said of Mercury in the 2000 documentary, Freddie Mercury, The Untold Story. And Hutton died of lung cancer in 2010 at the age of 16. We just talked about that. One of the the key scenes, I don't actually know if you got this far in the film, but one of the key scenes is actually where John Reed is fired by Freddie. Yes. He got thrown out of the car by Freddie because Paul had talked to John Reed about the doing a record a solo record deal and then when John Reed proposed it to Freddie, Paul was like, "I don't know what you're talking about." Uh, and then Freddie kicked him out in the middle of the traffic. Yeah. Yeah. Didn't happen that way. I assume not. <laughs> According to Bohemian Rhapsody, Queen appointed John Reed, Aidan Gillian, which is also Littlefinger from yes, uh, Game of Thrones, as their manager around the time they started work on A Night at the Opera. His other client at the time was Elton John. Later, during a car ride sometimes in the early 80s, Freddie fires Reed for hinting that he should leave Queen to pursue a solo career. In real life, Reed split from Queen in 1977 and the break was amicable rather than the the argument that we see in right. the film. Uh, Jim Beach, the band's lawyer at the time, took over as Queen's manager and remained in that role to this day. You mean Malibu? 
Miami. Or Miami, sorry. You mean Miami? (laughs) (laughs) Now that we all have respectable names. uh, (laughs) Is that true? Did he rename him to Miami? You know what? I never even I never even checked it, but it wouldn't shock me. Okay. I feel like that's something he would do. I mean, that's something that I was actually curious. Like, okay, that's kind of funny. And the guy's (laughs) like, it's Miami now. Like, okay. I liked it. We had a good working relationship with John Taylor said of Reed in 2011. The Queen documentary Days of Our Lives. He was very fiery and very feisty, but so were we. So we weren't scared of him. Uh, But apparently... John Reed actually had a three-year contract with Queen and that ran out. And so they kind of amicably split as opposed to having that like big blowout fight in the car. Yeah. That was masterminded by printer. Mm-hmm. And speaking of Paul. Ugh, where do I even start? I mean, he's he's the main antagonist in the film, but every film has to have a good villain. I mean, it sounds like he was kind of an antagonist in his life anyways, but... Outside of the press, the main antagonist in Bohemian Rhapsody is Paul Printer, played by Alan Leach. Uh, he first enters Queen's orbit as an assistant to the band manager, John Reed, and he will later become Freddie's personal assistant, acting as a schism between the singer and the rest of the band. In the movie's climax, Freddie fires Printer, especially after he learned that he didn't tell him about the upcoming Live Aid event. Printer talks to the media about unflattering aspects of Freddie's personal life. According to Blake's book, the real-life Printer was fired by Mercury, apparently for another reason. As it's recalled by Queen's former roadie, Peter Heiss, Printer threw a party at Freddie's residence and the place got trashed, so Freddie sacked him. I thought he fired him because of the articles. Or is that why he cut off communication with him? That's why he cut off communication with him. Okay. Basically, like, Freddie quit the life. He stopped partying, he stopped doing drugs, and I think that kind of drew a wedge between him and Printer. But then this party. Right. Now, here was the other thing that I had, issue that I had, was that you see after that car firing scene, you see Printer, like at the end of the car firing scene, you see Printer trying to kind of dig for information, right? And then... You see a small little snippet, snippet where Freddie's dad is reading the paper with the all the Queen's men's article, which shouldn't have happened until later. In theory, yeah. But yeah. I, again, like when you're when you're writing a script, you have to streamline these things. I know that, but I just think they could have done it better. Well, why don't you write it? Happy to. Go ahead. Do you know even how to start to write a script? I will work it out. Okay. It's going to be three <laughs> Crayola drawings. Hey! I do know how to write. I um, am a songwriter and a poet. I think I could write a script. I do know how to write. Both May and Taylor said in a later interview that Printer's impact on Freddie was harmful. He was certainly responsible for leading Freddie off on a different path. And it would be fair to say that we parted our term. Uh, we parted on terms that were less than good. May wrote later in his book Queen 3D. He was a very, very, very bad influence on Freddie. So I think basically what he's saying is he was a bad dude. Yeah, but he was saying it in a British way. He was a negative influence all around on Freddie, and then on the band. Yeah, or as a result, also on the band. 
And one of the questions was, did Freddie's personal manager, Paul Printer, betray him? In uh, Yes, in real life, he actually did. He worked as uh, Freddie's personal manager from 77 to 86, and it's true that the other members of Queen didn't like him, calling him a bad influence. And the timeline does get a little bit wonky as to what happened, but I'm guessing Freddie quit the life. Paul had this party. He got sacked, went to the press. And I think that's kind of the timeline. In my head, that's, that's the timeline of how that actually happened. All right, so We Will Rock You. One of the trailers released before the movie's premiere, Brian the scene in the studio teaching his bandmates pieces of music that involve both hand clapping and foot stomping that would give people something to do in unison at Queen shows. And that song became the anthem, We Will Rock You. But what's unusual about the clip is that Freddie is seen with short hair and a thick mustache, a look that is generally associated with him from the 80s. Okay, this is one of those ones where I saw it and I'm like, that's wrong, that's wrong, that is wrong. He didn't get that mustache until the 80s. That, nope, nope. I'm saying the actual recording We Will Rock You took place in 77 when Mercury did not have the mustache and still had longer hair. It's true that May wanted to write a crowd at them after he saw the audiences singing after the end of the Queen show at Beijing Hall. Oh, at Bing, Bingley Hall? A Queen show at Bingley Hall. On this particular occasion, they didn't stop. May recalled in the days of our lives, we went off stage and they sang, You Will Never Walk Alone to Us. I had gone to sleep thinking, what can an audience do? They were all crammed in there. They couldn't do much, but they could stamp their feet, they could clap their hands, and they can sing. So I woke up with We Will Rock You in my head. And that's how they got that anthem. So that's close, other than the mustache and short hair. Yeah. It's close, at least. Yeah. But it's one of those things that you can like physically look at and go, that's not the right look for the right time. Right. It's an anachronism. This is... Did did Queen actually break up before Live Aid? The answer to that is no. <laughs> I was going to say. I didn't think they had. The four members of Queen all had headstrong personalities and different musical ideas. Not surprisingly, they thought they fought over what songs would end up on the albums and which would be released as singles. Of course, it's four people that all have varying ideas and all want attention and credit. And in that respect, the movie accurately captures that tension. But a scene that takes place in the early 80s when Freddie announces to the rest of the band that he wants to go solo leaves the impression that he broke up with Queen. That scene is wrong on a couple different levels. Because the film actually makes a big deal about villainizing Freddie for wanting to break with Queen and do like a solo project. But the thing is, Roger had already had fun in space and he had another solo thing he was working on, The Cross. Right. Brian May had done his own projects. And so I think that they were just trying to build that tension between them by making solos Freddie, uh, Freddie's solo project a, a sticking point for them to have tension. Yeah, I mean, yeah, because he didn't even do his solo project until after Live Aid, I thought. It's a, it's the same time. Or it's like on top of each other? Okay. Yeah. Yeah, Mr. Bad Guy was 85, I think. Okay. Um, according to the books, articles, and documentaries, it was a, a, unanimously agreed upon that all four members needed to take a break after 1982's Hot Space. 
And it wasn't only Mercury who recorded his first solo album, Mr. Bad Guy, during this period. May had his Starfleet project record, and Taylor had prepared for what would become the 1984 album, Strange Frontier. Taylor had also released a solo single, I Want to Testify, in 1977. Queen later regrouped in 1983 to record The Works, generally considered a return to form after Hot Space. Also, in the movie, when the band meets to discuss performing together again at Live Aid, Freddie agrees that all future songwriting credits should be shared equally in order to appease his bandmates. In reality, the members of Queen didn't share songwriting credits for an entire album up until 1989's The Miracle. It was breaking up the whole time, May said to Mojo in 2017. All of us left the band at some point, not just at one time, all the way through, but we always came back. Yeah. So, like, literally, when the film is like, they broke up, they hadn't performed together, the works had just come out. (laughs) Right. They were touring (laughs) until May for the works. So, there was no, no, there was no breaking up. They had never broken up. Right. So, that... That's what the movie got wrong. Okay. Another thing the film does differently is Mercury's HIV diagnosis. Uh, One of the most poignant moments in Bohemian Rhapsody is when Freddie learns that he's HIV positive after consulting with a doctor, which in the movie happens before Queen's Live Aid performance in 1985. One day after after Queen rehearsed for the big event, Freddie bravely tells his bandmates about his condition and they immediately rally around him. But in previous narratives, both official and unofficial, Mercury's HIV diagnosis happens uh, sometime after the band's Live Aid performance. Probably somewhere around the 1986 Magic Tour was when he got tested. And we talked about this. They they all definitively knew by 1989. No one can quite nail down when they learned of it as a collective group. Right. But of course, in the film, you have to have, because the film ends on Live Aid, they didn't want to end the film with tragedy they wanted it to end with this massive triumph at live aid so they had to kind of shoehorn his diagnosis into the back of that story but again it doesn't it doesn't help with the timeline right okay this this will be fun for you okay so that that kind of wraps up the glaring things that the film got wrong or switched around or didn't get quite right so I'm going to move on to things that the film completely left out. Yes. This was a craw last night. (laughs) So where was the soundtrack to Flash Gordon? (laughs) Missing. Missing. It might have not been the moment that demonstrated the band's glory, but one of my favorite childhood memories was Queen's involvement in the camp kitsch brainstormer of a movie, Flash Gordon. He had never... uh, So the the director-producer, Dino De Laurentiis, wasn't so keen on using the rock soundtrack for this film. He had never heard of Queen, and we talked about that. He referred to them as the Queens. Oh, jeez. Like, who are the Queens? Oh, my. And is reported to have said that their music wasn't right for his movie. However, the band had the support of the British director, Mike, Mike Hodges, who felt the band brought a sense of humor to the project. And that was completely left out of the film. Yeah. Which is a bummer, because I think that's right about the time where Freddie would come out on stage riding the shoulders of Darth Vader. So I'm kind of sad they left that out. (laughs) Where was David Bowie? Missing. In 1981, Queen and David Bowie released Under Pressure as a single. Uh, The two of them worked together to produce the song while recording in Montreux, Switzerland. 
It's a great song. It was Bowie's third number one single and Queen's second, and it was voted the second best collaboration of all time in a poll by Rolling Stone magazine in August 2011, and it was played at every Queen concert from 1981 until they stopped touring. There are remarkably few contemporary celebrities portrayed in the film, and it would have been nice to have seen someone portray the thin white duke. Okay. <laughs> and if you are if you missed the episode where we talked about Under Pressure and David Bowie, the number one collaboration of all time is... You weren't here for it. Do you have a guess? Aerosmith and Run DMC? I think that's number four. Oh. Um... I was a little shocked by it, but give then, me a hint. Oh, uh, it it was recorded in our lifetime, and I think it's six different artists. But oh, is it "We Are the World"? Nope, that was a oh, bunch. Is more. it? Is it? Is it? Um, what's that friend song with Dionne Warwick? No, nope. no, nope. That's what friends are for. Yeah, it's not. No, um, I have no idea. One sweet day. What? Mariah Carey and Boys to Men. Oh, yeah. But that spent, like, when... I prefer Under Pressure. When Will looked it up. But it does make sense because Boys to Men were huge at the time. And so was Mariah Carey. And they did this gut-wrenching song. And I think it stayed number one on the charts for, like, 17 weeks. So it yeah. makes sense. It was a great song. It was yeah. a great song. So, yeah, they, 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 don't even, they don't even touch on Under Pressure in the film. Which no. is a total bummer because that's one of my favorite songs. Yes, I agree with that. Yeah, and then we talked about they glaze over Freddie's solo career in the film. Like, literally, I think there's maybe two or three scenes of it, like, yeah. of him in the studio. I don't think it's yeah. a whole lot, but they don't really talk about it at all. Yeah, I saw a couple of where I left off because I did try to start. I did try to finish watching it this morning, but then I had to go take the dog for a walk. Um, so I left off where Mary finally just comes to the house because Paul is not relaying her messages. Then you only miss like three scenes if you watch the live aid performance. No, I did not. Dude, that was the one thing I said you had to watch because I couldn't frame for frame. It's perfect. Well, I'm glad they did something right. <laughs> but I just, I had to go do other things. And I think this is the point of main contention when people are actually talking about Bohemian Rhapsody was that it, the film didn't get Freddie Mercury's sexuality right. No. So Bohemian Rhapsody is about Queen, yes, but it's also about the state of Freddie Mercury's heart. And by all accounts, Freddie Mercury's life was marked by two major relationships. First, his nine-year relationship with his fiancée, Mary Austin, uh, who he met at a department store, not backstage, as the film suggests. And then his relationship with hairdresser Jim Hutton, which lasted until Mercury died of bronchial pneumonia resulting from AIDS in 1991. The movie makes it appear like Mercury suddenly got a flipped sexuality switch. One minute he's cuddling with Austin, and then he was with Hutton, which isn't true. I mean, it's they did no, have, there the, was they a have huge the, chunk in between. They had the Paul part in yeah. the center, which they they didn't explicitly come out and say it, but yeah, no, him and Paul were lovers. But in reality, Mercury was sleeping with men while he was with Austin, and in fact, at the time of him writing Bohemian Rhapsody, he was having his first affair with a man. 
The author of Somebody to Love, The Life, Death, and Legacy of Freddie Mercury suggests that Bohemian Rhapsody was actually a coming out song. The film, however, does not touch on Mercury's affair with David Menz, and instead, Malick's Mercury goes into a charming and eccentric figure state, and Bohemian Rhapsody emerges from his head fully formed. But he started writing that actually, rumor has it that he started writing Bohemian Rhapsody when he was actually in college. So he would like tap out, and like the first line that he got out was, Mama just killed a man. Which, you know, no... (sighs) They do kind of, I will say this, they do kind of hint that he had that in his head for a long time in one of the scenes where he's with Mary. Yeah. And he reaches behind yeah. him and is playing the 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 riff line. Yeah. Like the opening. So I will give them that. That they all, like, they showed how long kind of that he was contemplating this at least. Yeah. But... But as far as his sexuality goes, Mercury was very fluid. You know, he would have a relationship with a female and then be sleeping with men and vice versa. Like, he actually dated the the German actress Barbara Valentina, but he also went out with Paul and David and Jim. So the the, the film actually got a lot of flack for the fact that in the film, there is a moment where he tells Mary about his sexuality, and she, I'll say the filmmakers had an opportunity to, to say, you're bisexual. And right. for him to embrace that fluidity and his bisexuality, but then it just makes Instead it... Instead of her flat out saying, no, you're gay. You're gay. Which he wasn't. He was he was bisexual. He He loved everyone. And... I think the film really missed the mark with that. That was one thing that did kind of hurt was because they had this opportunity to have him be an icon for both sexes and they shut it down and just made him black or white. And right. and, and and I can understand the outrage with that. Yeah. Cuz then you don't see him with any other woman than Mary. Yeah. And I yeah. I, I just mm. and instead of exploring the nuances of Mercury's sexuality, Bohemian Rhapsody sets up a binary that equated Mercury's queerness with transgression, and even Malik agrees with the circumstances that Bohemian Rhapsody underplays Mercury's sexuality and eclipses his relationship with Hutton by glorifying Austin. So basically, they're like, "She's perfect," and what is and this Jim? guy's also here? Yeah, here's this guy. <laughs> yeah. But the thing was, Jim did come in later in his life. And so, again, they had to kind of shoehorn that relationship in before everything. And, yeah, Jim was actually at Live Aid. Right. But more of their relationship was backloaded into the later years of Freddie's life. Right. So we don't get to dig into who Jim was and what he did for Freddie later on in his life because they ended at Live Aid, which is 1985, and he's still got six more years of life to live. Right. So another thing that they totally left out, they kind of hinted toward it in the film, but they didn't they didn't go as extreme as Freddie did because there were parties where dwarves were carrying trays of cocaine on their head. Yeah, and I do you know, they did include it in the dialogue of like call of like let's throw a party get dwarves and get all this like they did kind of mention it but they didn't actually show it yeah 
Freddie could outparty me, one time fellow Coke fiend Elton John told Uncut in 2001, which is saying something. Queen were well known in the industry for their outrageous shindigs. Most notably was the jazz launch party at New Orleans Fairmont Hotel in 1978, which featured which featured wholesome delights including nude waiter waiters and waitresses, a fellow biting the head off live chickens. I think those are called geeks. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> naked models wrestling in a liver pit, and dwarves swanning around with trays of cocaine strapped to their head. And this was standard. Um, I did enjoy at one of the party scenes, they they did make a nod towards um, bicycle race with the girls on the bicycles in the corner, but they were fully clothed yeah. versus the nude versions that it probably would have been. I will say that Queen was not a PG-13 band. No. And Bohemian Rhapsody is a PG-13 movie. Yes. So, yeah. Yeah. So it's fine that they weren't naked. I'm just saying I did enjoy that little nod to the bicycle race yeah. with the girls in the background in the corner on the the stationary bikes. Yeah. So kudos to that. So, yeah, they really, they really toned down his partying in the film. But apparently his parties were like, the stuff of legend. So, not entirely left out, just majorly watered down. Yeah, and this is what I was talking about. He rode around on Darth Vader's shoulders at the height of Star Wars Mania in 1979, uh, so 1979 and 1980. Mercury commemorated the movie the only way that makes sense, stalking the stage for encore performances of We Will Rock You perched on Darth Vader's shoulders. Well, it was probably a roadie, but you get the picture. Okay, parental trigger warning. He was the prime suspect for the old chestnut of rock mythology. What do you think the, the rock myth is? Like One of the big rock myths. There's so many. Drug related. I have no idea. <laughs> one of the tales buzzing around Mercury was one of the old chestnuts about employing a, what's the nice way to say this? Employing a groupie to take turns blowing cocaine into a hole that should be only used for getting things out. Blowing cocaine up your bum hole? Yes. Uh, with the unusual root causing such havoc in his bowels long term that he had to keep pelting to the loo is the Yikes. phrase that I've got. Yikes. I'm okay. Didn't Stevie Nicks do that too? I don't like, know. She did so much cocaine. That she had um, basically a hole in her head. And the doctor's like, you're going to die if you do cocaine one more time. And so she had them start putting it in her fanny instead. And the reason why I mention that is because some people get that maybe confused with Stevie Nicks. Another attached to him was the well-worn classic about having a rib removed so he could cut out the middleman and... Pleasure himself. Yes. Marilyn Manson had that same rumor as well. Yeah, so did Prince. Oh, okay. Yeah. I mean, number one, is it that easy to get a rib removed? I I, I mean, if you're a celebrity, maybe. I feel like, I, I, feel can't, like, I can't believe I'm having this conversation. I feel but like I feel you like have you, to have a very long uh, off spine. Well, spine, but also like 
the other you'd have to take time off the road for recovery and like the I don't know I feel like no like I don't feel like the spine I feel like I don't feel like the ribs are what's causing the problem I think it's the spine and the fact that you can't like fold over that way because your ribs are in the way apparently okay here's a fact that was completely left out of the movie and most people don't even know it happened and I'm kind of sad that they left it out of the film, but I understand why they did. In August 1979, Royal Ballet Principal Wayne Eagling went looking for a particularly limber star to join their ranks for a charity gala performance. After Kate Bush turned them down, he turned his attention to Mercury. All right, then. His initial reaction was less than favorable. I thought they were mad, but he eventually warmed to the idea after speaking to the head of EMI, Sir Joseph Lockwood, who also happened to be the chairman of the Royal Ballet Board of Governors. Brady had a general interest in the ballet, but Lockwood really got him fired up. And Queen's manager John Reed, in The Great Pretender, said, He was fascinated by the scale. It was epic, and everything about Freddie's performance was epic. It was a perfect match. Despite Mercury's athletic performances with Queen, it would take intense rehearsals to get him up to par. They had me practicing at the bar all the time, stretching my legs, trying to do things in a week that they had been doing for years. It was murder. After two days, I was in agony. I was hurting in places that I didn't know I had, dear. <laughs> Mercury made his grand debut on Saturday, October 7th, 1979 at London's Coliseum Theater before 2,500 patrons. He sang Bohemian Rhapsody and Queen's upcoming single, Crazy Little Thing Called Love, to a live orchestra backing, all while being hoisted aloft by three shirtless men. By the end of the performance, he donned a silver bodysuit and executed several formidable full-body flips. There was only one person in the world that could have gotten away with it, Roger Taylor, who was in the audience, told Blake. Freddie was performing in front of a very stiff royal ballet audience, average age 94, who did not know what to make of the silver thing that was being tossed around on stage in front of them. I thought it was very brave and absolutely hilarious. But they left that out of the movie. Well, things had to get cut. I know. I can still be sad by the things they cut, <laughs> but things do have to be cut. Yeah. And that would have put, like, that wasn't about Queen. That was more about Freddie. And while she makes a very short cameo in the film, Freddie actually, <laughs> this is one of my favorite stories. Freddie actually dressed Princess Diana in drag and snuck her into a gay bar. Nice. By the mid-80s, Queen's proximity to royalty went well beyond their name. Mercury had become friends with Lady Diana Spencer, the Princess of Wales, so-called People's Princess. I love Princess Diana, and I'm so... I think a lot of people do. Most oh. people, I think, do. She had endeared herself to a nation with her down-to-earth manner. Mercury conspired to give her a night out on the town. Nice. According to the 2013 memoir by actress Cleo Rocos, Diana and Mercury spent the afternoon at the at the English comedian Kenny Everett's home, who, if you'll remember, Kenny Everett was the DJ that played Bohemian Rhapsody 14 times the first day. Right. So they were very close friends. And that's another thing that the film skims over is his relationship with Kenny. Yeah, they just had that one little scene for the first time he played it. Yeah. And that was it. Yeah. And they didn't mention about it playing 14 times the first day or anything like that. And they also, like, they have a throwaway line where the, where she's like, I didn't know that he knew Kenny so well. And Mary's like, oh, yeah, I didn't either. And that was it. 
So we did miss half that Fair story. Enough. They were drinking it champagne in front of reruns of the Golden Girls with the sound turned down and improvising dialogue with much more naughtier storylines. When Diana inquired about their evening plans, Mercury said that they were planning to visit the Royal Fahal Tavern, one of the most iconic gay venues in London. I hope I'm saying that right. If not, I'm sorry. The princess insisted that she came along to blow off some steam. It was a well-known place for its rough crowds and fights that often broke out between patrons, perhaps not the best place for a princess. We pleaded that it would be headlines if you were caught in a gay bar brawl. But Diana was in full mischief mode. Freddie said, go on, let the girl have some fun. The disguise was an essential part of the plan, so Everett donated the outfit that he had planned to wear, an army jacket, a dark, dark aviator sunglasses, a leather cap, all to conceal her hair. Scrutinizing her in half-light, we decided the most famous icon of the modern world might just, might just pass for a rather eccentrically dressed gay male model. (laughs) (laughs) They managed to sneak Diane into the bar undetected. The crowd distracted by the presence of Mercury Everett and Rokos ignored the princess completely, leaving her free to order drinks for herself. We inched through the leather throngs until we finally reached the bar. We were nudging each other like little naughty schoolchildren. Diana and Freddie were giggling, but she did order a white wine and a beer. On the transaction was once the transaction was completed, we looked at each other, united in our triumphant quest. We did it. Not trying to push their luck, they actually left after twenty minutes. But Diana, for a brief moment, was able to shed the weight of celebrity. We must do it again, she enthusiastically said as they made their way back to her home at Kensington Palace. They left that out of the movie. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Oh, that's one of the things where I'm like, I get it because you have to have the introduction of the two, have them actually have a friendship and then sneak her into the bar. I mean, you could assume because of his celeb- his own celebrity that he would have access to them and whatever. Oh, no. But like, not the royal family. But she was of the people. Yeah. But she still had. I mean, for God's sakes, you can't wear a certain nail polish color around the queen. It's true. Like, these are very tight people. And that's, you would look at Freddie and go, okay, well, he's a party animal and these are prim and proper people. They're posh. You wouldn't think those two would get together. Right. So they would have to have at least three or four scenes thrown into the film to get to that point of taking her out. Right. And again, one of those things that you would have had to have had several scenes put into the film to make this work but this is seriously one of my favorite stories freddie mercury recorded three songs with michael jackson and quit because of his llama yeah we talked about that last episode craziness uh yeah yeah so that was a a, it seemed like the film left a lot of his famous friends out of the story completely yeah but again some of that is just freddie and not queen and I feel like, you know, yeah, the the film did kind of focus more on Freddie than the band as a whole. But I do think it was trying to tell the story of the band and him within the band, like his life. But as it pertained to Queen, I will give my hot take on the film Bohemian Rhapsody and then you give your hot take. OK, OK. The first time I watched Bohemian Rhapsody. I pretty much cried from beginning to end. <laughs> that's that's the honest truth because all of a sudden one of my heroes is alive again. Rami Malek is stunning in his performance. He is the embodiment of Freddie. 
And early on in the casting, they had Sasha Baron Cohen in the role of Freddie Mercury. And while it wasn't a terrible idea, I think that Sasha might have brought a sense of humor that might not have been appropriate for the storytelling. I know that Bohemian Rhapsody is a flawed film, but the fact is, it's a great way to open up Queen's story to the masses and get a new generation of people to love Queen. It does have its flaws. They left a lot out. There are anachronisms. They accordioned a lot of things into a very short film. But if you watch the film and you know Queen, there are clues left around for you to build your own backstory. And the fact is, Bohemian Rhapsody was backed by the band. The The actual movie had the blessings of the surviving members of Queen. One of the brightest spots for me is the Live Aid performance. And there are a ton of people that have done side-by-side comparisons between the film and the actual performance. It's the full length of the actual performance, and it's incredible what they did. The camera work's astonishing. The fact that Rami embodied Freddie during his performance is beautiful, and it's a great way to end the film. However, I get bugged out because they nail down an exact moment when he knew he had HIV. They nail down an exact moment when he tells the whole band. And if I have to give... Bohemian Rhapsody, a grade of A to F, of course, A being great and F being the worst. As a film, I give it an A. As the story of Queen, I give it a C. I think that's fair. I mean, listen, you went into the film in a very different way than I did. I mean, you have this connection with Freddie, and so you're already going to have a little bit more of an emotional attachment to it and an emotional response to it. For me, I don't have that. I was interested in the movie when it first came out, and I think if I had seen it then, I maybe wouldn't have had the issues that I had watching it as we've gone through, you know, the entire month of telling the story. For me, although I agree, Rami Malek and the rest of the cast did beautiful, beautiful work. Yeah, the guy who played Brian May... Yeah, they were great. They they clearly time-traveled, got the young Brian May to come to the future. Right. And just do this movie. Yeah, they did did fantastic work. That that is not in question. I think, you know, as a film, it was fine. Uh, But I didn't care for it. As as LD has mentioned a couple of times, I didn't even finish it. I got to a point where I'm just like, I, I can't. Like, I'm done. What specifically didn't you like about it? So I had a lot of issues. I had a lot of issues with just the inaccuracies or the timeline scramble. It was giving me a headache. And then the pacing of it, which again, I understand you're trying to cram a lot of story into, you know, you say a short amount of time. Yes, technically it is, but it was a long movie. And it just, it was a little frustrating for me, like... I felt like I was missing huge chunks of time with no real indication that we'd moved forward so much. I felt like, you know, they really only touched on a couple songs, that being like, We Will Rock You and and Bohemian Rhapsody, even the namesake of the movie. 
I feel like got glazed over too. And again, I understand it's a film and, and you have to kind of condense, but I also feel like I didn't feel like there was a clear line. I will, I will say one of my complaints for the film was that it really strayed away from a lot of the controversy that they dealt with. I mean, the fact was they played Sun City. They didn't even mention that in the film. Yeah, and I and that that was a massive thing where like they played in a place where there was the apartheid going and and Bob Geldof kind of spearheaded this movement against Sun City. They even created a song called Sun City and Queen went against his peers and played this played Sun City. They they and that and I mean, I think they took out a lot of the controversies that Queen had to deal with. And again, it's a PG-13 movie and Queen is not a PG-13 band. I felt like they kind of villainized Freddie a little bit. Like they made him a massive jerk for a big chunk of the movie of, you know, his fighting with the band, you know, ragging on the band members in public, like his comment, his side comments at the party scenes about, you know, hinting towards infidelities in front of Brian's wife and stuff like that. Like not Brian or not Brian, Roger, Roger's wife. Like, and then, you know, they had that, the scene with, but that actually, that actually happened. Well, and that's, and Roger's still alive. So I didn't get into that. No. And I, you know, he may have done all this stuff and had these moments, but I just feel like they it flip flopped between him being a jerk and then his desperations with Mary. And I just, and then they missed so much else. Like I say, his time with New York, his party times, his promiscuity but i think again that's that's them avoiding that controversy i get it the other (sighs) thing the other thing is we we have been recording this podcast since august it is now almost october we have on the whole probably recorded about 13 hours which has been condensed to about six and we didn't get it all in I mean, it's the same thing when they made Harry Potter into a film. People were pissed off because they left stuff out of the book that they really liked. But they had to. The list of things that are, that quote, need to be included is subjective, realistically. I mean, tell the story that you want to tell about it. But again, I feel like when you make a book into a movie, yes, things are going to be left out. When you make someone's life into a movie things are going to get left out but the things that you choose to include as that producer director again I'm going with accuracy am I bummed they took out the importance of New York to him a little bit did it destroy everything no but there was a big chunk missing in general well they also tied in New York they also put in an, an amalgamation yeah. One person was supposed to be basically Five. all of the executives at EMI. Yeah. And did you catch who it was? Mm-hmm. The, wait, do you mean the actor? Yeah. No. Oh, 
You didn't get who the actor was? No, behind the weird sunglasses? No. Yeah, that's Mike Myers. Oh, is that who it was? I saw the credit for Mike Myers, and I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> yeah, no, and it's great because he says, no one's going to be banging their heads in their cars to Bohemian Rhapsody. And I'm I like, saw that, yeah. And I'm like, I'm like <laughs> well played, sir. Well played. Yeah. In summary, I like the movie, and I'm a huge Queen fan. Tracy did not like the movie, and she's not as big of a fan as I am. I am so, still a fan, but I'm not, yeah, I'm so, not your level. Yeah, which it's strange that we would have those varying opinions, but that's the great thing about being human. All right, guys, well, that's uh, that's pretty much a lock on what's the difference between Queen's actual life and Bohemian Rhapsody. Of course, like the movie, we couldn't point out everything that the film got wrong, but I would say... If you love Queen, give the movie a shot. It's worth it. It's entertaining. It's good. It might not be accurate at all points, but you do get to hear a lot of Queen music, and the performances are amazing. There's not a single person that is a bad actor in this film. Yes, the acting was perfect. Yes. It was spot on. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what else is spot on is that we have a Patreon. And if you would like to donate it, you can do that at patreon.com backslash rock and roll heaven. You can find us on Twitter at rock and roll LT. You can find us on Facebook at rock and roll heaven pod. You can check out our Instagram at rock and roll heaven LT. Still not saying our website. And you can email us at rock and roll heaven LT at gmail.com. If you missed all that, it's actually in our show notes in your app. So thank you guys so much for checking this episode out. Next week, we are going to be starting our spooky October shows. Ooh. Ooh. Oh, that was really that good. The... That was really good. <laughs> I that can was, do some things about it. That was a fun little spirit sound. Do I that can again. do some things. Do it again. Ooh. Oh, that's so good. You should record one of those little monster machines that you get. <laughs> I'll, uh, I'll look into that. I mean, the first one's not super spooky. I only think that our final episode is really spooky because we've got, well, we got really, we got four really cool weeks coming up. I won't, I mean, I'm, I'm, I fear to say they're really cool. Some of them are really sad. Some of them are really tragic. Some of them are really interesting. And some of them are just going to be really funny. Yeah. So you guys check, uh, check us out next month. But we don't, uh, I think we mentioned this in the last episode too. We don't have like specific person that we're covering each week like we normally do we're taking the month just to kind of have a little bit of fun yeah for the month of halloween yeah Ooh, halloween spooky spooky yeah so <laughs> check us out next month for our fun spooky october month and that is about it. any business that we have to take care of is that it i think that's it Woohoo! all right so tj yeah. Do you like our Jensen ghost? If it's Jensen, I love it. Well, he's now in two corners of our room now. I know. I can actually see him while we're recording now. Yeah. I like that. I like it. All right. Bye. Bye. Happy birthday, girl. Oh, thank you. All right. Bye. 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 Turn it Bye. off. No, you turn it off. <laughs> 
With the Baker's Plus card, it's easy to get lower than low prices. For the win, earn fuel points on every purchase and save up to a dollar a gallon at the pump. The Baker's Plus card. All you do is win. Big, big savings. Sign up now at bakersplus.com and start saving. Baker's. Fresh for everyone. Savings may vary by state. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your favorites with the buy five or more, save a dollar each sale. Simply buy five or more participating items and save a dollar each with your card. Bakers, fresh for everyone. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.